Well, good morning and welcome to Mount Calvary Church. I know Elizabeth opened up our service with our announcements, but I just want to highlight one of those announcements. We have our Easter carnival coming up in three weeks. We're just four weeks from Easter, and so we call these types of events um, all hands on deck. And so we are looking for significant help. A thousand people potentially here. We're a week, at that point, we're just a week out of Easter. And our hope is that we would connect with as many people as we can at this carnival and that we would invite them and they'd come back to Easter Sunday where we're going to have baptisms and testimonies and I'm going to be sharing the gospel. And so um, we have games and booths that are going to be all across the soccer field. We've got rotations of volunteers, but we, we really need a lot of help. And so if you're available, if you're breathing and you're alive... We'll take you, uh, but we would love your help for that. And so just wanted to bring that to your attention. Um, let's pray as we uh, open up God's Word today. Father, thank you for this morning. It's a beautiful day. It's been a beautiful weekend, and we're, we're grateful that we can come together and that we can sing that your Son is alive and that we have hope because of your son. And that is a, a song that we, we need this morning. It's a truth that we need this week. And so, God, we pray that you would speak this truth to us, not just today, but whatever our week holds. And God, now as we open up your word, as we read and study your truth, God, I pray that you'd work in our hearts and you'd work in our minds, that you change how we think should cause us to depend on you more fully. Speak to us through your word, through your Holy Spirit. Encourage us where we're discouraged. Convict us where we're sinning. God, speak to us. Lead us that we may be a church, we may be a people that follow you and do what you've called us to do no matter what. And so God, give us focus Give us ears to hear, a heart to receive, courage to do and to change. Because, God, we want to be a people that represent you well. And so, God, we ask for your help this morning as we read your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Someone had texted me this week concerning a baseball team, my baseball team that I like, concerning a player that was leaving our team and said, quote, all good things must come to an end. And I thought, wow, that is certainly true. All good things. Now, for this baseball player, that's, you know, that's unfortunate, but it's true in all of life. All good things come to an end. I think of our big summer vacation that we take every year down to Sandbridge. We get a beautiful house on the back bay cousins and grandparents and fishing and the beach. And I mean, it is the best week, but we always know Saturday is coming when we're going to pack up the car Saturday morning. We're going to look, Ashley and I are going to look in our rear view mirror and see three kids completely devastated that summer vacation has finally ended. All good things come to an end. The house you grew up in that you love comes to an end. Chocolate cake comes to an end. 
Our oldest dog is coming to an end. Buster is struggling right now. It's really sad to me. All good things come to an end. All things come to an end. Good things and bad things. I had a church member come up to me a few weeks ago and said, Pastor Matt, is the world ending? Are we in the last days? Look all around us. Look at the war. Look at the climate. Look at the hurricanes and the forest fires. Look at the government control. Look at COVID. Look at all these things happening in our culture with marriage and gender. Look at this person. This person must be the Antichrist. Look at what he's doing. Look at the the use of QR codes and vaccine cards and all these things. This is the mark of the beast. And at this point, they're grabbing my shoulders and shaking me, and I'm crying like I am so scared. The world is coming to an end. They were certainly convinced. So as I've been thinking about this, I mean, we, for 2,000 years, we've predicted the end of the world. And for 2,000 years, we've pretty much been wrong consistently. But as I kind of gathered myself from this person that was not literally shaking me, but causing me to really get nervous, my answer to them was this. Is the world ending? Are we living in the last days? My answer to this person was, yes, we are living in the last days, but it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with our current events. We've been living in the last days for 2,000 years. This is the message of Peter this morning. All things come to an end. And it was true for Peter when he wrote these churches, and it is true for us today. And I don't know if it's necessarily tied with our current events. I suspect we have some time to go. But here's the truth that Peter's going to tell us this morning. The end of all things is at hand. I mean, we are, we are here. It is now. And as I say every week in my benediction, these are daunting These are daunting words, recognizing that the end is right before us. And so for us this morning, as we kind of embrace kind of the challenge or the the sad truth that all things come to an end, all good things come to an end, the world is going to come to an end, the question for us is, what, what, what do we do? And that's what I say in my benediction. What are we going to do in light of the reality that the, the end of the world is at hand? And so we're going to look at what Peter tells us. And what Peter tells these five churches, he is speaking to us today in a moment where we're not sure what tomorrow holds. And what Peter tells these churches, he's telling us, may this be your full focus. And I'll tell you, it's surprising Like it's not the typical or it's not what you would probably draw up for the end of the world action. Yet it is the inspired direction of God through the Holy Spirit speaking and writing through Peter. And so may we hear it and may we do it. Our passage this morning is 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. 
above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So here's how I want to think about this text, kind of the, the general outline. We have the nearness of the end. I'll put it on the screen. It's going to be that first phrase in verse 7. And then really after that first little phrase in verse 7, we get what are we to do in light of this reality? But this first phrase, 4-7-A, that first phrase, the end of all things at hand. This is the force of the entire passage. And so we want to spend time, what does that, what does that phrase mean? And then how do we respond in light of that? So verse 7a, the end of all things is at hand. Some translations, the end of all things is near. The end of the world is coming the culmination of all things is close. It's a pretty common way for New Testament writers to speak. The nearness of the end of the age, of the end of the world. And so for us, as we think, what, what does Peter mean by this? Okay, or maybe asking it a little bit differently. How can this be true? How can this be true for Peter 2,000 years ago? And how can it be true for us right now, today? And so I want to think about time or like a theology, a New Testament theology of time to help us understand what does it mean that today we are near the end. Okay, so let's think through kind of the way that the New Testament structures history. Okay, New Testament typically, this is a pretty broad statement, but lays out history in two distinct ages. Okay, you with me? Two distinct ages. I'll show you a couple examples. Matthew 12, 32, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Jesus is operating in a two-age understanding of history, the age that we are currently in, and there is an age that is still to come. And this is the type of language that the New Testament uses to think about history. Another example, Luke 20, 34 through 35, Jesus said to them, the, son of this age, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given into marriage. So there is this age, the age that we are living in now, we're marrying, but yet there is an age to come where we, where we will not be married, where there will be the resurrection of the dead, some future time period. Another example, Ephesians 1, 21, God seated Christ far above all rule and authority 
and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one that is to come. And so that's a pretty simple point. There is the age that we're currently living in, but yet there's going to come a point in history where we are no longer in this age, but we are in the next age, a different age, where there's the resurrection of the dead, as Luke 20 told us, where we're no longer marrying. It's the age of eternity, where we're with Jesus. And so, pretty simple point, but I think it's important to kind of, as we frame our thinking about the nearness of the end, to recognize these two ages. So now the question is, okay, well, where do we sit on the timeline of this age, the current age? Like, are we kind of in the middle, the beginning, or are we the end? I think the writers of the New Testament make it pretty clear that we are, we are in the last days of this current age. A couple of quick verses, Acts 2, 16 through 17 but this was uttered through the prophet Joel, and in the last days it shall be. God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. This is talking about the giving of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. Okay, Joel is prophesying that when the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2, we are in the what? The last days, the last days of the current age that we are in. First Peter 1.20 he, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Okay, so where, when was Jesus made manifest? How about when he was born, when he lived, and when he died? And how does Peter describe the timing of the event in, in, with regards to the age that we're in? These are the last times. One more, 1 John 2, 18. Children, it is the last hour. As you have heard, the, the, that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is, it is the last hour. There are deceivers that are here now. There is a deceiver that is coming. But again, it's that same type of phrase. We are in the last moment, the last day, the last time of this age of the of the, the last moment before we enter into the next age. Jesus said it on the cross, it is finished. And so what does this, what does this mean? It means all of the great and wonderful and wise events of God's plan for history have happened that need to happen before the culmination of history ends with Jesus coming back to this earth. So everything is done Jesus has been resurrected. He is ascended. We talked about that last week. And so we are in the last days. The, the end is close in that the only event left to happen is for Jesus to come back, for the resurrection of the dead to happen. And so maybe you're thinking, well, how can this be true for Peter 2,000 years ago? How can it be true for us today? Like, is it really close if we'd been waiting 2,000 years for this end to happen? And the answer is absolutely it's still true. Second Peter tells us that 1,000 years for God is a day. Peter knows, Peter's anticipating that this is what they're gonna struggle with. And he says, well, 1,000 years is a day. So for us, it's been two days. It is still near. 
The last event has happened. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and so we are close to the end. And so that's what I told my friend, my friend that was shaking me. Are we in the last days? The answer is yes, but it is a firm yes 2,000 years ago. It was a firm yes the day you were born. I'm not reading the current events. I'm not thinking about does this fit with that and But I'm saying we know it is close, we know it is near, we know it is the last hour because of the inspired word of God through Peter to these churches. The end of all things is at hand. And really, that just about sums up my theology for the end. Peter's not going to get involved in the precision, which sometimes we can do, the precision of when it's going to happen. Now, there may be a place for that, but Peter's not concerned. He's not trying to help them know precisely when. This is his eschatology right here. You are in the last days. And I think it is a good word for us today to maybe not spend as much time trying to nail down precisely when or if it is now but maybe to spend more time on what Peter is about to lay out to us today. And so what do we do? I mean, what do we do? That, that is daunting. It is heavy. Uh, Peter is going to tell us, first, therefore, that's a big word. That's a key word. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of of your prayers. I could have written the whole sermon just on this. There's so much gold here, okay? The word self-control. It's really interesting. This is the same word. Like, we want to, what does this mean? Like, what, is this, what does this look like? Because he's talking to us, and so what does it mean to be self-controlled? What does it mean to be sober-minded? And how, what does it have to do with praying? And what does praying have to do with the last days, with the end of the world? Why is that what we're doing? This is not typically the picture you think of someone who recognizes the end of the world is here. You typically think of crazy people like marching with signs, and it is the opposite picture that Peter paints here. Self-control, sober-minded, and you are praying. Okay, so what, is it, what does self-control mean? I think it's really interesting. This is the same word that Jesus uses in Mark chapter 5. This is what we, we've called this man, the Gerasen demoniac. Okay, we won't read the whole story, but take it, take it from me. This man was crazy. Okay, living in a graveyard, naked, out of his mind, out of, his contr- out of control, cutting himself, strong, unable to be bound. I mean, you avoided this graveyard. Literally a wild man. Okay, Jesus starts to interact with him, and he meets Jesus, and Jesus sends out the legion of demons that were tormenting him. And the man's life changes. I mean, Jesus rescues this man that people will avoid. And then this is the description of the man after Jesus came in contact with him. Mark 5, 15. And they, that's the town, came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. That word, in his right mind, is the same word that Peter uses here in 1 Peter 4, 
7. Self-control. I mean, this is the picture. The naked man was clothed. I like the word, I like that, that he's described as he was sitting. He was sitting. He was, he was calm. He was in control. He was focused. He wasn't crazy. He was thinking rightly about life and everything. That's what it says. He was, think, his, he was in his right mind where he was, had distorted thinking and he was confused and he was being falsely led. Now this man is sitting, just sitting, contemplating, thinking correctly about life. And this, this is the picture, no longer reckless, but has a mental handle on things. And then you pair this with sober-minded, and you really get the emphasis that Peter is making, the power of how we think about what is happening at the end of the world. And, and I know we've been talking a lot about the mind, but Peter keeps hitting this point, two words, self-controlled, sober-minded. To put those two together, it is like he is pounding his fist saying, you have got to be focused. You have got to be inundated with good theology about what is happening as everything else comes to an end. Sober-minded. This is the third time we see this in 1 Peter. Okay, so Peter likes this word. He's going to use it over and over and over again, more than most of the New Testament writers. Why does Peter keep saying sober-minded? Well, let's go back. Thanks for asking. 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Being sober-minded, set your hope fully. How do you hope fully in something? You prepare your mind for action. That's what this verse tells us. How do you set your hope on something? By being sober-minded. The mind sets itself up on the promises of God, and it helps you to hope. Okay? I'll say that again. Our mind sets itself on the promises of God. And it is our mind that leads us to be able to have hope because our mind is focused fully, completely on the promises of God. And so being sober-minded is controlled thinking so that we can have hope in the promises of God. That's how Peter uses it in 1 Peter 1.13. We'll get to this use in a couple of weeks. 1 Peter 5 Eight, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Okay, so just real quickly, your sober-mindedness, your focus, and your thought, how you think is the key. I mean, it is, it is the answer to how we resist the devil is having fully controlled thinking about who is attacking us and how to think and what to do. And so here's what we're seeing. Peter is, do you think Peter is downplaying the use of the mind? In, in no way. Peter can say this no louder. Your sober-mindedness is key for your hope. It is key for your prayers. It is key for you resisting the devil, and so for us, he's, he's pleading with us. 
Don't neglect your mind. Stop scrolling. Stop watching the news. Stop drinking. Stop whatever it is that is impacting how you think and start recognizing how important your thinking is. Peter is hitting this so hard that when we are in the end times, we're, at, we're there at the end, the, the devil is coming up against us, we have all the reasons not to have hope, and what does he say? Sober-minded. So think clearly. Think clearly. I mentioned this, don't let alcohol or substance cloud how you think. Again, we, we have to think clearly today. We have to be prepared to be precise and focused about what God is doing. Think deeply. I, I say this often. Don't, if we're to be sober-minded and self-controlled, then we have to think deeply about this book. Away with the reading plans that make you just skim the surface of these books, of this book. And, and I would much rather you pick one verse a day if you would just but think deeply about that verse that you would dig underneath the verse, that you would mine the gold of his word, that we would engage our minds into thinking about this book because we're called to be sober-minded and self-controlled, that we think theologically, that we would read. We turn off, I've said this, turn off the news. That's just gonna make you become that frantic, anxious person. Turn, on the, turn off the news and pick a book and read a book. Engage God with your mind. Every night, end your night by reading something that's, that's profitable, that's theological, that causes you to, to be sober-minded and self-controlled. I'll put some books that I've been reading lately up on the screen. Um, email me if you have questions about a book. I like Tim Keller. Every Good Endeavor is about how we make our work profitable for God, whatever it is that we do. I love the book on heaven. It's 500 pages. I mean, you want to sing and rejoice and let your imagination take you over. Read a 500 book on heaven. All these questions you have about heaven, this is it's a great book. I don't care what you read. Engage your mind for the glory and for the gospel. Engage your mind so that we would be self-controlled and sober-minded, not frantically worrying about when precisely this person is coming or this is happening. But Peter is saying, be sober-minded and be self-controlled. Now, what is the urgency for prayer in the last days? So that's the sober-mindedness and the self-control helps us, sets us up to be praying people. So why pray now. 2 Timothy 3, 1. There's several reasons. Understand this, that the last days there will come times of difficulty. Why should we be praying? The last days are discouraging. And, and that's true of today. It's true 2,000 years ago. It is, it, it, we live in a discouraging time, and so we pray, and we go to the cross, and we lay our burdens down, and we say, God, the last days are evil, the, the last days are difficult, and I am bowing before you, and I'm laying my needs before you at the foot of the cross. That's why we pray. Luke 21, 36, he says, stay awake. Jesus says, stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place 
to stand before the Son of Man. He's talking about the last days. He's talking about that, that moment, that transition from the last days to the age to come. And what does Jesus say? Stay awake. Pray. You need strength. There are temptations, and that's what we'll talk about here as we finish up 1 Peter. It is going to be difficult because Satan, the prowling, roaring lion, is out to get us. And so we stay awake, and we pray against the temptation. We pray for strength. We pray for help because the last days, things will be increasingly difficult. And so the question is, is what, what are you doing? How are you spending your time in light of the reality that, that this is ending, everything is ending, that the times are tough. I recently saw a painting. I don't know where I saw it. I'm going to put it up on the screen. It's a lot to take in. It's not the easiest to see, but it's a painting by Rembrandt that was painted in the 1600s, and it's of, of one of the stories in the gospel, in the gospel of Mark, called The Storm. The painting is called The Storm on the Sea of Galilee. It's a beautiful painting. Jesus and his disciples in the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is asleep. The storm comes upon them, and Rembrandt is taking some artistic licenses to paint out what, what is happening to these other disciples in the midst of this storm. And it really is a brilliant painting. It's beautiful, the use of lighting, the weather, the elements. You can almost, as you kind of study the painting, feel the terror, feel the waves, feel the wind and the rain. But what I love the most about this painting are the, the ways that Rembrandt uh, paints and illustrates the different characters that are in the boat. Okay, so you can almost see these very multifaceted, different ways of responding to this storm that has come upon this boat. I'll show you just some of these characters a little bit closer up. Um, you got the guy at the top. He, he looks like the leader, he looks confused. As you look at his face, he's like, he's thinking, or I think he's thinking, I, I don't know what he's thinking. Like he, he did everything right. He was the expert that put it all together and now the sail has ripped in half, but he is the leader at the top of the boat. You've got the three guys underneath him in the white, or really there's the four guys that are frantically working. The sail has ripped in two and they are working hard to fix it. The guy near the bottom there in the white, he's hanging on. He's got that one hand, and he is just holding on through the storm. And then you shift down. The lighting shifts as you go down to the bottom of the boat, as if to say this, this is a completely different world for these, for these men here at the bottom. Okay, You've got the one guy who's hanging over the boat who looks sick. That would probably be me. You've got the two guys. If you see Jesus, he's got the, the slight halo or the glow around his head. You've got the two guys looking at Jesus, and, and you probably can't see it, but they look angry. They're, they're furious about he's sleeping. What is he doing? You've got the guy at the top with the oars. Honestly, I don't know what he's doing. He looks lost. He looks really confused. The guy right above Jesus also has a weird expression on his face. There's the guy in the white whose back is towards us, right there in the middle, behind the guy in the blue, and we don't know what he's doing. It almost looks like there's a vision or there's something in front of him that he's looking at. Maybe, you know, he, lo he looks dejected. He's turned his back on us. 
Okay, and this, this, is, this is the boat, but there's one person you probably missed. There's one person. I'm going to circle him for you. He is the only one that is facing Jesus with his head bowed in prayer. And, and Rembrandt also gave him a little halo as if to say, this is the saint. This is, this is the way to respond to the storm of life. On your face, facing Jesus in prayer. And probably my favorite aspect of this, my favorite part of this painting is that Rembrandt didn't put 12 disciples in the boat. He put 13. Why did he put 13? Because he wants you to place yourself in that boat. And the question is, I mean, which one are you? I mean, who are you today? The world is ending. It's not a literal storm like it is in this painting, but it is, it is chaos. It is chaos. And the question is, who are you? What are you doing? Are you sober-minded, self-controlled, on your knees, praying for strength, for resolve, for wisdom? And he doesn't stop there. He lists a couple more things that we are to be focused on. Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers over a multitude of sins. Love earnestly. You know what I, you catch what I say in my benediction? I say love deeply. The word is kind of hard to translate, um, I don't love any of the translations for the word love earnestly. The word is for, for earnestly or for deeply is the Greek word ektene. Ektene. Ek is a, is a Greek preposition that means out of or from. Tene is a word that was used in athletics that means to stretch or to reach or to, to exert some activity to grab something. So literally, the word means to outstretch. It was used of a horse that was galloping. In, in Greek literature, this word was the, the, the horse is galloping, and when the leg is fully outstretched, reaching for the finish line, that's the word that was used. It's only used one other time in the New Testament. Luke twenty two forty four. when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, being in, let's put it up on the screen, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. He is stretching out to the Father to the point that he is, he is bleeding. Okay, this is the picture of the love that we are to have today. Love strenuously, outstretched Love, reaching to love, to care for others. Love, pretty clearly here, is not, is not meant to be easy or self-contained or overly sentimental. I mean, the picture is you are strenuously, strongly reaching out to love other people. And so, I mean, is this what you're doing? Does this describe your love or is your love easy? and contained and methodical. It says, don't, don't be grumbling. Don't grumble. He talks about that with our hospitality. It's part of love. In other words, 
He's not looking for checking boxes about caring for other people or forgiving to other people. He's saying that I want you to love out of an abundance so much that you stretch out and you strenuously give. And that phrase there, I've never really thought about the phrase. Love covers over a multitude of sins. I mean, that's a pretty trite, pithy saying that we use. Love covers over a multitude of sins. So what does that mean? It means that when you stretch out to love someone, someone's sin is not going to keep you from loving them. Your outstretched love for them isn't based upon them being a righteous person. You can love them and serve them. You can change a tire and give to them and care for them and be in relationship with them, feed them, be there for them. And their sin isn't going to get in the way of you loving and caring for them. Love covers over a multitude of sins. That's what he's saying. There's grace when you love someone. You don't love someone because they're righteous or because they have it all together. You reach out and you exert yourself to love and to serve them, even if they abound in sin. And so this is the call. Self-controlled, sober-minded, and we pray. And we, and, but then get the picture here, the kind of the contrast, the quietness of praying, the self-control of praying, And then the exertion of love, kind of the the going after of loving other people, like the contrast of, of what's happening here. One's quiet and controlled, and then love strenuously, love deeply. And then the last two things, we're we're out of time, but hospitality, which is just a subset of love. You give to people based on what you have, your home and your food and your your gifts and skills that you, you, it's a picture that love is not just on the surface, but it is, it is deep. It is, it is real. And then you serve. God's given us gifts, some gifts to speak God's word, the oracles, some to serve with their hands. And so this is how Peter lays it out for us. We are at the end and we have been at the end and we're going to continue to be at the end. That's not changing. What are we to do? We are to pray We are to love, we are to host and give, and we are to serve. So church, may that, may may those four be our markers as a church. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for instruction, because we need instruction, because left to ourselves, we wouldn't know what to do today. We'd read the news and see the wars and see all that is happening in our culture. And God, without you, we, we would go absolutely crazy. But God, I pray that we would hear the words from Peter and apply them to ourselves today. That we would be people who are self-controlled and sober-minded so that we can pray for strength, for salvation, for protection, And God, that we would love strenuously, sacrificially. We would stretch out and reach out to the people in our lives, to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to strangers, to family members, whoever it is, God. And that we would give and give and give because that's your love for us. God, that we'd be hospitable. 
that we would serve in whatever way we can. And so God, I pray that this would be our focus this week. We don't know what's gonna happen in the world events and the news or what's gonna happen tomorrow, but it's okay. May we put all of our heart, all of our focus on being the people that you've called us to be through 1 Peter 4, 7. It's in your name we pray, amen.